0: Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I am Cy Kellett, your host, and as promised, our guest this hour is Jimmy Aiken. The number is 888-318-7884. You are welcome to call with any question at all, and I mean any question at all, and anyone is welcome. Uh, Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you can dial in, you can ask your question, 888-318-7884. Jimmy, of course, senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, the author of The Bible is a Catholic Book, among many other things, and the proprietor of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, and he also sometimes greets me quite formally. Hello, Jimmy Akin. Oh, come on now. No audio for Jimmy? Seriously? We're going (laughs) to... After all that buildup No audio for Jimmy uh, Now do I have audio? Oh, you gotta be kidding me Alright, well let me get... <laughs> Let me get some people on the line for Jimmy and let you guys figure out the audio. 888-318-7884 is the number. 888-318-7884. Uh, we're looking at it. We're giving each other looks in the studio, trying to figure out uh, w- why we have no audio. But I know we will have audio for Jimmy shortly. Uh, Maybe we have it now. Oh, now we do. Now we do have audio. Uh, well, hello, Jimmy Aiken.
1: Hey, Cy. Si. Now that was quite informal.
0: <laughs> well,
1: you said I you said I greet you formally. Sometimes you didn't say I need to yeah. do so all the time. That's true.
0: You gave me the old switcheroo, Jimmy. You gave yeah. me the old switcheroo, uh, which reminds me of one of my favorite jokes. Does it? Yes. I okay. wonder. Have you ever wondered who's buried in the tomb of the man who invented the old switcheroo? I don't know why. That's just one of my favorite jokes.
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> Presumably, someone other than the man who invented it. Exactly.
0: Maybe it's uh, General Grant. Uh, again, 888 318 7884. Now that we have audio, I have the urge to go straight to the phones. Let's let Ian in Rosedale, Ohio on. Ian, watching on YouTube. You are first today with Jimmy. Go ahead with your question. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian.
2: How are you? Um, how do we it kind of explain how the institution of the Church is a good thing, especially to people who have been hurt like by the Church in the past?
1: Well, um, so I guess I would say a few things. The first thing is, anytime someone has been hurt, you want to express sympathy and understanding, and you don't want to minimize the hurt that they experienced. The second thing you want to do is help them to understand that there's a difference between the church and whoever it was that hurt them, because the church is an organization with a billion people in it. And certainly it's a little indelicate to put it this way, but certainly a billion people did not gang up on a person to hurt them. It was something much smaller than that, maybe an individual or maybe a small group of people, but um, that's not the entire Church. And the third thing I would point out is that the Church has done enormous good in the world. Uh, Simply looking at the Looking at the church from a purely secular sociological perspective, it's built educational institutions and hospitals and charities to care for the poor, so it's done a lot of good, simply from a non-religious point of view. And then when one, if one is a person of faith and one believes the Bible, the foundation of the church was the will of Christ. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the reality of the Church is something that's found throughout the books of the New Testament, and it's indicated everywhere that it's a, an institution that God founded, and that he wants his followers to be part of. And we can go further um, with, I think we're up to point four now, maybe five. Um, we benefit from the Church and from participating in it. The uh, one illustration of that is found in 1 Corinthians, in uh, chapters 12 to 14, where St. Paul discusses spiritual gifts, and he indicates that the Holy Spirit has given each Christian one or more gifts that are there in order to help out other Christians. And so uh, one of the things we're supposed to do is use the gifts that we've been given to help other Christians, and thereby we also receive help from other Christians. So it's not just for us to help other people, it's also for us to be helped by others. And then to add an additional point, Jesus's uh, principal commands, I mean the two great commandments are love of God and love of neighbor. And so those two great commands, even as imperfect as human beings are, they shape the Church, They're, and they are meant to shape us. And if we genuinely love other people, we shouldn't be afraid to be around other people. Now there is some risk in that, because um, because if when you open yourself up to other people, you can get hurt. Um, you know, this is a truth not just in religion, it's a truth in other settings in life as well. You know, one of the, one of the sort of sayings that I know was around when I was growing up, and this was in secular rock and roll circles, was love hurts. And certainly it's been the experience of any person growing up, you know, you, you become attached to someone of the opposite sex and you make yourself vulnerable to that person. And, and you can end up, it, you can end up being hurt but the benefits of being a loving person and being open to others and being willing to enter into relationships with other people benefits us more than than the opposite does if we if we remain closed and isolated from other people emotionally we're going to end up lonely and hurt in a completely different way and so when you take all of those factors into consideration, as well as others that we could go into, but that those provide a general sketch, uh, we benefit by the Church that God founded for us and by participating in it, including, not least, finding salvation, because that's what the Church does for us. It brings us God's grace in the form not only of the gospel, but also of the sacraments. And we need the sacraments in order to live a proper spiritual life and navigate our way through the turmoils of this life, including our own sinfulness, and to then find our way to God. And so the Church provides that benefit for us as well, which is the greatest of all. Ian, thank you uh, very
0: much uh, for that question. I hope that that was helpful to you. Um, I'm going to go now to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Brooke in Kenosha, listening on 88.5 FM. Go ahead, Brooke, with your question for Jimmy Akin.
3: Hi. Um, First, I just want to say thank you guys so much for doing what you do. Um, You guys played a big part in my change of faith from Protestant to Catholicism. Um, My question is, So, I have a close friend of mine who... Um, struggles with depression, mm-hmm. and she has always believed in God, but hasn't really practiced that that much. I'm trying to get her a little closer to mm-hmm. practicing her faith, but her main question, she often says, um, like, we have friends who don't believe in God, and, and they they always seem like they're having a better life, or everything's going really well, and she's, her life isn't. So I guess what would you say to that
1: well I would say that I understand where she's coming from Um, you know depression is something that that occurs in life like when I lost my wife I was depressed after that you better believe it Um, and so you know it's it's something it's something that's always sad when life hurts and there are ways to help and get better and find joy and um, and one of the things that tends to do that is not to self-isolate, but to get out and become involved with people with whom you can have positive relationships with. Now, if there can be a kind of grass is greener on the other side of the fence effect, where you look at people who are living a different lifestyle than you are, like, say, atheists in this case, and say, wow, it looks like they're having so much fun. But you're only seeing part of their experience. Um, Sure, uh, there are pleasures that one can engage in if one is an atheist and isn't trying to please God, that one would refrain from if one is trying to please God, Um, and those can bring a kind of temporary happiness, but they're not going to bring the kind of happiness that ultimately satisfies, because let's say an atheist goes out to a party and, you know, gets high and has pleasurable physical relationships with somebody, and then they go home and they're they're by themselves at that point. And what they don't have, even though they did have some physical pleasures, is the pleasure of knowing that there is a God and that God loves them And that God loves them no matter what, because God loves everyone. And if you're an atheist and you don't recognize that God exists or that God is love, which St. John tells us, then you are living in a universe that's ultimately meaningless. And there is no fundamental, uh, great fundamental being who loves you and cares for you and, and will guide you and help you. You're on your own. All alone in the dark, so to speak. And consequently, um, even though you may get a little bit of temporary pleasure by acting as if there is not a God, you deprive yourself of the more fundamental pleasure and long lasting pleasure of knowing that you are loved by an infinite being who will always love you. And who will take care of you and help you in difficult times and provide for you? And so, I would say that simply from a psychological point of view, since the question is, you know, asked in a psychological way, the person isn't asking, "Does God exist?" But you know, something about why do why do atheists seem to have these other experiences? Um, I would say that atheism ultimately does not satisfy the way belief in, in God does, acting on the premise that there is no God will leave you alone and cold in a way that acting on the premise that God does exist and that he loves you will leave you warmer and happier despite the problems in life. And so it seems to me the thing to do when one is depressed is to, um is to make the choice to believe in God and his love, and then move beyond—build on that, I should say, by seeking ways to feel better. You know, there are treatments for depression, there are things you can do, you know, listen to music, watch a fun movie, go out with friends, get some exercise, go dancing, all kinds of things you can do to— to get pleasure in life and make yourself feel better, get counseling. That's another thing one can do. And so there are a lot of options to feel better, but sort of as a foundational life choice, acting as if God exists and that he loves you will make you happier on balance than acting as if there is no God, and therefore he doesn't love you.
0: Uh, Brooke, I'm going to say thank you very much uh, for that, because I have to go to a break. But if you want to hang on, I'd love to send you a copy of Jimmy's book, uh, The Words of Eternal Life, True Happiness and Where to Find It. I, I think you will enjoy it yourself. Uh, it was very gracious of you to mention that we had helped you come uh, uh, towards faith. And uh, maybe it's something that you want to share with that uh, friend. So hang on, Brooke, if you would like that, uh, we'll, we'll be happy to get it out to you. we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Open Forum with Jimmy Aiken right after this on Catholic Answers Live miss a show make sure to catch up by downloading the podcast available online at catholic.com underwriting for catholic answers live is provided by real estate for life real estate for life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations on the web at realestateforlife.org EWTM publishing proudly presents the latest work from one of the world's most important catholic voices robert cardinal serra In Catechism of the Spiritual Life, Cardinal Seurat shows us how to enter into and progress through the spiritual life. Cardinal Seurat invites you to journey with him through the Gospels. Catechism of the Spiritual Life by Robert Cardinal Seurat. Now available at ewtnrc.com or call 1-800-854-6316. Welcome back. Kathy Gantz is live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Jimmy Aiken, is our guest. Jimmy, of course, the proprietor of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious Serious World, where a new episode dropped this morning about the second Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis, the one you don't know about, but I haven't gotten to see it yet, uh, Jimmy. I've been uh, working
1: today. Yeah. Or trying well, to look like understandable. I'm uh, That's understandable. You can watch it on your way home in the car. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to finding. I can't watch. I can't I could listen to it. I'm well, gonna watch don't, it. People, don't people have cars in their TVs, TVs in their cars now?
0: They do, yeah. And some of those cars kind of drive themselves. I'm not exactly sure the status of that right now. I am really looking forward to self-driving cars because mm-hmm. I'm that driver on the road that really bothers everybody else. And I think mm-hmm. I'll be less bothered when the car is doing the driving and I'm not. And then I'll watch Jimmy Akin's Mysterious
1: World. Yeah, the well, until then, you can listen to it. And right. so, yeah, like like you said, this week we have the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis. And next week we're starting to look at the Seventh Day Prophetess Ellen G. White. Oh, right. Oh, good. Uh, that's at Mysterious.FM. Yes. <laughs> Did it. Good I think, job. I think this is the first time also, I got it right. <laughs> Also YouTube.com slash Jimmy Akin. All righty.
0: Uh let's go to uh, Dayton, Ohio, where Tony is uh waiting, listening on nine ten AM. Tony, uh thank you for waiting. Uh go ahead with your question for Jimmy.
4: Uh hey guys, hey Jimmy. Um I read your book, The Bible is a Catholic book, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Um, you know, one of my yeah, one of my favorite parts. I don't know, it was all good, but um just the idea of uh, the new printing press and how that kind of enabled the novelty of sola scriptura, but I don't know, um my question is uh, you you talk about the uh you know the the preaching to the Ethiopian um, mm-hmm. the Ethiopian eunuch, and um you say it's it's Saint Philip the Evangelist, not the apostle. Oh and i right. always thought it was the apostle and and i guess can you just talk to that a little bit and then who is saint philip the evangelist i thought there were just four evangelists okay so, so anyways, that's my question
1: yeah so let's start with our let's start with terminology because we've got an issue here that involves the term evangelist and like a lot of words Evangelist can mean more than one thing. Now, Cy let's demonstrate that that words can mean more than one thing. What does the word kitty mean? Uh, That is a baby cat. Is it also a pile of money or chips in the middle of a poker table? It is. Yeah, so there we go. Kitty can mean at least two things. We've just demonstrated that. And the same thing is true of the word evangelist. Now, the root of the word evangelist is the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel. And so an evangelist uh, is someone who communicates the gospel. But you can do that in different ways. One way of doing that is to preach it to people, you know, to go where they are and tell them about Jesus and share the gospel with them in that way, and hopefully make converts and bring them to Christ. So that's a kind of personal evangelization. But there's another way of evangelizing, which is to write about it, where you're not necessarily with someone personally, you're not orally sharing the gospel with them, but you could write a book and share the gospel with them. And so there's a kind of literary evangelization in addition to personal evangelization. And of all the books, that share the gospel with people, all the books about Jesus Christ, there are four that are particularly important—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the original four Gospels, they made it into the Bible, and the, each one of them is called a gospel, starting with Mark, which appears to have been the first. Its title is The Gospel, that's euangelion, The Gospel According to Mark. And then once other people started writing gospels by my reckoning as i describe in the bible as a catholic book i think luke was the next they needed a way to distinguish well how do we how do, uh, which gospel are we talking about when we're going to read one you know you get a lector up in church he's going to read to the congregation on sunday and he needs to say a reading from the gospel of luke and so that's how the four gospels got their names and because they're so important To the Christian faith, the authors of the four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—became known as the four evangelists, because they wrote the four written Gospels that are our primary sources of information about Jesus and his life. But there are other uh, other evangelists as well, people who did personal evangelization, and that's something that St. Paul refers to, uh, for example, in the book of Ephesians. He talks about how God ordained that some should in the church should be prophets, or some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists—meaning the kind of personal evangelist that goes around preaching the gospel and planting churches—and then some pastors and teachers. And we even know the names of two of the first century personal evangelists. One of them is uh, St. Timothy— Because in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he tells him, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so we know that Timothy was one of these evangelists in the first century. But there's another one, and in a way you could count all of the apostles as evangelists because they all did in-person evangelization, but Timothy was known for doing it. And he wasn't an apostle in the same way, and so he gets evangelist as a title. The other one that we know about is Philip the Evangelist, and he's called that in Acts chapter 21. Now Acts chapter 21 also tells us um, another important fact about Philip the Evangelist. Luke says that he was one of the seven, and the seven are a group that's introduced earlier in the Book of Acts, they're introduced in uh, Acts chapter six, and they're a group of men. It, it, you'll, in some older works, you'll find them described as the first deacons, but modern scholars, including at the um, Pontifical Biblical Commission or the International Theological Commission, one, have have looked at that and said, you know. The description we get of them in Acts 6 is not really the description of deacons, and they're never called that, and they're not doing a typical, dia- typical diaconal tasks, and so it doesn't look like they're the first deacons. Instead, they were a group that the apostles appointed to oversee the distribution of food— in the Jerusalem Church, because there had been a conflict about are the Hellenistic Jewish—meaning the the Greek-speaking Jewish widows—are they getting a proper share of the food compared to the Aramaic-speaking Jewish widows? And to solve the controversy, the apostles appointed these seven guys to oversee the food distribution to people who were in need, like the widows. And they had themselves Hellenistic names, so they couldn't be accused of bias in favor of the Aramaic-speaking Christians, and one of them is Philip. And so we read about Philip early on in Acts 6, and then after the martyrdom of um, of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Philip. there's a big persecution of the church in Jerusalem that starts, and a lot of people are driven away from Jerusalem except for the apostles, and Philip is one of those people. And in Acts chapter 8, he uh, goes on a preaching mission, he converts the Ethiopian eunuch, he evangelizes the Samaritans, and we see him doing that personal work of evangelization that then later in Acts 21 gets him referred to as Philip the Evangelist because he did those things. And he's therefore separate because he's one of the seven. He's separate from the Philip that was a member of the Apostles that we read about when we In both when we read lists of the apostles' names, which appear several times in the New Testament, there's a Philip in there, and also in John's Gospel, uh, the beloved disciple has a special relationship with Philip the Apostle, it seems, and occasionally interacts with him directly. And so we read about both of these figures, both the apostle and the evangelist in the New Testament.
0: Uh, Tony, uh, thank you very, very much for the question. Lots of folks on the line, so on we go. Uh, Tim in Wyoming, watching on Facebook. You are next, Tim. Go ahead with your question for Jimmy.
2: Yeah, hi. Um, I bought uh, around a little over 30 of the candles for my church uh, for the holy for the Holy, for All Souls Day, uh-huh. and um, I was doing some reading, and I saw that, like, if you, I, I guess it's like if you have a candle in with somebody's name on it, um, it will lead them from purgatory to heaven. So I don't know if that's accurate, and I didn't find anything as far as the church teaching. So, where would that have come from, or is that accurate?
1: Um, well uh, it, as far as I am aware, because there's no there's no certainly no church teaching on this, um, it to my mind, would be an opinion, and the opinion, as far as I would be aware, would be rooted in folk Catholicism because when you light a candle for someone, these are what are known as votive candles, and when you light a candle for someone, it's a kind of enacted prayer. You're, in essence, by lighting the candle, you're sa- and often people will add a, a vocal prayer to it as well, but it's essentially praying for someone, and that can be conceived of as guiding them to heaven in some way, but that's just a popular depiction. It's not literally what's happening.
0: Uh, thanks, Tim. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Be right back with more Open Forum with Jimmy Akin on Catholic Answers Live. Catholic Answers Live. The recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade was a monumental victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight is far from over. With our new booklet, Why We're Pro-Life, we have produced the perfect tool to prepare you to have peaceful and convincing conversations to shed light on the truth about human life from conception to natural death. Catholic Answers is printing millions of copies of this booklet and we plan simply to give them away. You can help us in two ways. First, by generously supporting this project. 25 cents prints one book, $2,500 prints 10,000 and so on. Second, by helping us distribute the booklet through your parish, your school, or the pro-life ministry you work with. Catholic Answers is going to blanket the country with why we're pro-life, but only if you step up and help us. Thank you so much. For more information, visit whyweareprolife.com. Have you enrolled in the Catholic Answers School of Apologetics? Let me ask you a more important question. Do you believe, as a Catholic, that you have an obligation to share the Catholic faith? In fact, the Church has answered this question, and the answer is that all confirmed Catholics are obliged to share the faith. It's actually in canon law. Catholic Answers is here to help you fulfill that obligation. Our School of Apologetics courses will equip you to help all the people you come in contact with understand what the church teaches and why. A great place to start is with all the Catholics in your life. Learn the art of apologetics from the best of the best and start sharing the gospel today. Visit schoolofapologetics.com. That's schoolofapologetics.com. miss a show? Make sure to catch up by downloading the podcast. Available online at catholic.com. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy Akins here. and It's open forum, a little bonus open forum on a Friday, and you are welcome to call. As a matter of fact, Three lines have opened up. That gives you a good opportunity to get in, 888-318-7884. But when there's three lines open, that means three lines are full. And so back to the phones we go. Andrew in Midland. I'm going to uh, guess Michigan. All right. On uh, Listening on Ave Maria Radio. Hi, Andrew. Uh, go ahead with your question for Jimmy. Hey,
2: Sarah, si. Yep, you're absolutely right.
0: Michigan. Good.
2: So, uh, yep. Uh, so, can you guys hear me all right?
0: Very well. Yes. Go ahead.
2: All right. Yeah, I had some trouble with your call screener. So, so Jimmy, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, teaching Christian or Catholic morality apart from, like, you know, like mentioning those uh, those those faiths. You know what I mean? So, like, if I'm talking with um, a kid at school uh, with me who is uh, maybe not Catholic or not Christian, do you think that it would be okay for me to sort of try to uh, teach them in our morals separate from our faith?
1: Because maybe well, they would
2: reject the whole conversation as soon as I bring up the, the religion.
1: Yeah, so assuming there are no other considerations, I mean, there's always a question of what should one and what is one allowed to teach other people's children. Um, But in general, uh, encouraging people towards the truth is a good thing. And so it doesn't matter what the truth is, uh, sharing truth with people is what we're about. And so, um, and all truth is God's truth, so whatever truth you're sharing with someone is a good thing that in principle, and this is certainly true of moral, moral truths, will help them move closer to God in some way. And even if they're not at a point where they're prepared to embrace the fullness of the Christian faith, um, the more elements of the Christian faith they come to realize are true, even if they don't realize it's Christian teaching, the better a position they'll be in later on to consider, and open-mindedly and favorably, becoming a Christian, or becoming an active Christian, or whatever it—however you want to put it. So I would say, in principle, yeah— If someone's not at a point where they're prepared to consider the Christian faith or being active in the Christian faith as a whole, at least helping them understand and embrace aspects of Christian faith, including moral teachings, which are, you know, accessible to human reason—do good and not evil, don't commit adultery, love is the, you know, essence of the law, you know, all those Um, things—that's a good thing to do with someone, sure—
0: uh I, well, I you know what I I but I had Andrew on hold and, a
1: student
2: so I'm not I'm not talking to uh, uh other people's kids
1: Oh you're yourself a student yeah.
2: yeah well I'm a college student so
1: Okay well you know yeah absolutely if you're able to help people grow closer to God even if they don't think of it that way by helping them understand and embrace you know moral truths then that's a great thing Andrew,
0: thank you very much uh, for that call. Uh, Let's go now to Owensboro, Kentucky. Daniel in Owensboro watching on YouTube. Go ahead, Daniel, with your question for Jimmy.
2: Hi, Mr. Aiken. I just had a question on how to reconcile two things um, that the Church seems to have. Um, I know it says, fewness of the saved. I've read a lot of quotes on how a lot of saints think relatively few people are going to be saved in the end of, at the end of time and total. But I've also read people like St. Faustina and St. Therese of Lisieux mm-hmm. who have this kind of doctrine of trust and about God's infinite mercy. And so mm-hmm. one group kind of makes it sound like it's going to be really hard to get to heaven, and the other group sounds like it's more attainable, and I don't know mm-hmm. how to reconcile the two.
1: Well, um, so there's a diversity of opinion on this. Uh, you have some authors in Christian tradition that make it sound like it's going to be really hard to get to heaven, and you have other authors who say either everybody or almost everybody's going to make it. So, And that includes early church fathers who go in that direction, like St. John Chrysostom, for example. So um, there's, there's always been a diversity of opinion, and one of the reasons for this is that you have different texts in the New Testament that are, some of them sound very optimistic, some of them sound pessimistic, and so the New Testament itself gives us a selection of texts that convey different impressions, and one of the perennial challenges down through Christian history has been how to reconcile those different elements, and they can be reconciled in a bunch of different ways. The so one way of trying to reconcile them is by or trying to figure out the overall issue is by reading the arguments that the uh that different authors propose for their position and seeing which you find uh the most persuasive, which you think have the most evidential value. On the other hand, um, the church does not have a teaching regarding this subject, so it really does leave it to individuals to figure out. One aspect of this that I think is important to bear in mind is that the more pessimistic more pessimistic statements in the New Testament were in an age when the world was covered in pagan darkness, and you did not have a widespread knowledge or acceptance of God and of Christ the way you do today. The Old Testament prophets had predicted that one day, knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so there would be a, a very widespread universal almost knowing of God, and that was not the case in the first century. So when you have statements in the Gospels or in, uh, in the, the epistles in the New Testament, they're given in the context of a world where the vast majority of people are pagan, and are not enlightened by a conscious knowledge of god also those statements really aren't addressing the situation of like children they're addressing adults you know and and the situation for someone who's a, who's who's a mature person that has made a responsible adult decision of how they're going to live their lives and so if you're if you then include children who Saint Paul indicates, you know, like when they're in the womb, they haven't done anything good or bad, so you know they certainly wouldn't be punished because they haven't done anything bad. And before a certain point in life, children don't have the ability to make uh, to commit mortal sin, to make that kind of decision, and so they wouldn't be punished for for things that they have done. And so that adds an optimistic element. And then if you go further in history, after the Christianization of large portions of the world, I mean today. Uh, half of humanity worships the God of Abraham, and the other half has heard about him. So we're in a very different position today. Now we are in an age where knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. Um, That also would be a sign that we would want to be more optimistic today than would have been the case in the first century. I'd also like to recommend for you an article that appeared a few years ago in the journal First Things. It's by Cardinal Avery Dulles, D.U.L.L.E.S., and it's called "The Population of Hell." And in it, Cardinal Dulles, who was named a cardinal because of his how sharp of a theologian he was, um, he considers the question of how optimistic or pessimistic should we be, and are we really given the information we need to know? to establish a percentage or f- ratio or fraction of what people make it and what people don't. And his ultimate conclusion is that, um, that we're not really told that we don't have enough information to establish will it be a large percentage or a small percentage, and uh, he thinks that's a good thing, because if we knew it was going to be a large percentage, we might tend to slack off But if we knew it was going to be a small percentage, we might despair. And either way, we could ruin our chances of getting into heaven. So he actually argues it may be a good thing that we don't have an exact percentage. Uh, But I'd suggest that as part of your consideration of this subject, you check out Avery Dulles' article... The Population of Hell in First Things, which you can find online just by Googling it.
0: Uh, Daniel, thank you very, very much. Jimmy Akins, our guest this hour. It's open forum. And as you might expect, there are lots and lots of folks on the line. So off we go to Ohio. Jeff is listening on The Rock in Ohio. Go ahead, Jeff, with your question for Jimmy.
4: Hi, guys. How are you guys doing today? Good. Thank you. Awesome. I had, I had a question regarding Daniel chapter 10. Um, I read it a couple of weeks ago, and I believe Daniel is praying, and then uh, uh, the Lord sends an angel, and the angel yep. was delayed, I believe, by 21 days. Yep. And explains it was due to a uh, wrestling with a, um, another Prince angel that was trying to prevent him. Yeah. I'm yep. sorry?
1: By the Prince of Persia, yes.
4: Yeah. And... Um, I, I I guess I was just, like, surprised or maybe um, trying to get my head wrapped around it in terms of um, why it would take one of God's angels, like, 21 days. You know, I'm, I, I guess I'm just kind of thinking it would almost be like Ohio State playing a junior high school in football tomorrow and having to go through five overtimes to win the game. I just, I, you know, I, I don't know a lot about angels or anything like that. I mean, are, are the... Uh, um evil angels just, you know, it's almost as powerful or whatever. I again I you know, okay. maybe there's another part to that or whatever. So I like I said, I just try uh, to get okay. my head so, around
1: so 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 the image here is of angelic warfare. And and that's understood. Um Conceptually, since we're humans, we can't really imagine what it's like to be an angel, and not in a literal way, and be engaged in warfare. So that kind of transcends our ability to understand. But the model that Daniel, as a human, would have understood it in terms of is human warfare. Well, in human warfare... You may have one side that is larger, that has more troops than the other, but um, but the people are all fundamentally equal. I mean, some may be more talented or physically stronger than others, but they're all human beings. And in the same way, angels are all angels. And there may be different kinds of angels, but they're fundamentally equal in nature. And so um, it's it's not like a game, like a sports game, where you have rules about when it needs to end. It just a conflict in warfare just ends when it ends, when one side is able to outmaneuver or overcome the other. It's like in, Ru- in Russia and Ukraine right now, you know, it's taken a while for the Ukrainians to start winning back their territory. They can't just snap their fingers and have it done instantly or even over a few hours. You know, they're able to retake a given territory when they're able to retake it in the conflict by outmaneuvering, outflanking, or simply crushing their opposition. And that's the same thing that would we should understand about angelic warfare. It's not like a sports game where there are rules about when a conflict needs to end. The conflict will end when one side is able to achieve its, its, uh, its goals in this conflict. And so um, Daniel prayed to God, and it took 21 days for the angel Gabriel to be able to get through to Daniel with the message. That he came to deliver because the angelic Prince of Persia was blocking um, the angel Gabriel. Now, we don't know, was it just the two of them, or, you know, was it like two squads of angels, one of which was under the heading of Gabriel and one of which was under the heading of the Prince of Persia? That we're not told, but we are told that they were evenly matched enough that Gabriel was not able to get through on his own, and it took assistance by Michael—and possibly other angels under Michael's command—to be able to um, contain the efforts of the Prince of Persia enough to allow Gabriel through the lines to deliver the message to um, to uh, Daniel. And then we're also told that Gabriel is going to leave, and he and Michael together with any forces that they're commanding are going to be stronger than the Prince of Persia and his forces, and they're going to defeat the Prince of Persia, and that will make room for the angelic Prince of Greece to start to become prominent. So Gabriel alone was not able to get past the Prince of Persia, but Gabriel plus Michael and whatever forces they're commanding, together they are able to defeat the Prince of Persia, and he says that's going to happen and make way for a new angelic leader to become prominent.
0: Uh, and I'm going to leave that there, uh, Jeff. I hope that was helpful to you, but i got to take the break. We'll be right back with more Open Forum with Jimmy Aiken on Catholic Answers Live.
2: There's only one Catholic Answers Live.
0: We have a big problem. Our culture is dying, and souls are in danger of being lost. The answer is conversion to Jesus Christ in his church. St. Paul Street Evangelization is a Catholic organization, and we have hundreds of teams spreading the good news throughout the country. But we need your help. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com.
3: Faith is a precious gift from God. As the largest religious media network in the world, EWTN has an important role in educating others about our Catholic faith and spreading the good news of salvation. We invite you to explore our numerous pages of historical faith documents, prayers, teachings, and other current issues in Catholicism today. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network.
0: Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. Wow, time is going quickly uh, today. We are coming into our last uh, segment uh, of the hour, and lots of folks still on the line for Jimmy Aiken. It's Open Forum with Jimmy Aiken, And up next, we go to Washington. Uh, listening on Catholic.com, Carolyn in Washington. Carolyn, you there with us? I'm here. Hi, Carolyn. Go ahead with your question for Jimmy.
3: Well, I woke up one morning and saw what was... Um, it, what I was wondering, if it was Satan or a demon, what is Jimmy Akin's take on that? I saw a red-like man kind of a figure with a tail, and I just I just wanted to know what he thought, if it was a Satan or a demon. What, How would I begin to interpret it? I'm going to RCIA, and I'm being mm-hmm. confirmed on Sunday, and oh. I wonder if I could have prayers for miracles.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure, um, and... We can certainly encourage the listeners to pray for you and the other people in your class and also for many blessings, including even miraculous ones. Um, so I need to know a little bit of more about this experience you had. So you said it happened after waking up in the morning. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And you're quite confident that you're awake because I know sometimes I will wake up in the morning and then fall back asleep and think i'm awake and then it turns out i'm not um but you're sure I, you I were i was
3: confident i was awake i'm confident okay. i was awake when it happened but i did fall back asleep and then i felt a touch and then my nightgown moved um and i'm confident that my nightgown moved too i'm i don't i mm-hmm. i know that that happened
1: Okay, um, well, if it, I would still, in my mind, if you know you fell back asleep, I would have a question about was this a dream experience that was in which you, you thought you were awake since you'd woken up once it um, would have planted the idea I'm awake in your head and that could have been incorporated into your into your dream once you fell back asleep. However, if if you're correct and you know you say you're confident of this that it was a genuinely waking experience. Um, My next question is, did you see this figure with your physical eyes, or seem to see it with your physical eyes? Did it look real, or could you... Was it like something you were seeing in your mind's eye?
3: It was real to me. It was with my eyes. Okay. It, It wasn't a real person, like, person, like, um... Uh, that was standing there. It didn't seem real, as if it was a person standing there, but it, it seemed real as, um, as, as a vision.
1: Okay, so it you couldn't like see through it. It was it it was no. s- solid enough that it looked like a physical object. Okay, and yes. did this did this figure do anything, or did it just stand there?
3: This. The Satan or demon one just stood there, but there was also a man, and he touched me, and I felt the touch.
1: Okay, and what did the man look like?
3: Um, I want to say, <laughs> like, the, um, the character that played uh, Darth Vader.
1: Oh, really? So, um, so it was all, the man was also a sinister-looking figure.
3: I I only in retrospect tried to figure out how I would describe what he looked like but it it he was a white man with short dark hair and he was wearing a suit uh with a hat and
1: mm-hmm. um What did, what did but the suit he, look like? A brown face. Mm-hmm.
3: Black suit.
1: Black suit. Okay, and did, when he touched you, what did you experience? Was it um, was it a pleasurable sensation? An unpleasure unpleasurable sensation? Was it neutral? Pleasurable. Could you get it? Pleasurable. Did you get a sense that yeah. he was trying to comfort you or or help you in some way no. by touching okay. you?
3: No. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay, and has anything like this ever happened before? No. Okay, have you had other um, have you had other visionary or paranormal experiences? No okay. Well, um, so you know in a in a brief radio conversation, there's you know only there's a limit to how much I can explore it with you, but um, I would say that uh, and you know, I could obviously go, in much further depth if we had the ability uh, to speak off air, but based on what you've said, um, I don't think I can draw a firm conclusion about it. It occurs to me that even though it seemed to be a waking experience, it it may not have been, um, but also it could be a a genuine experience. It sounds like it was concrete enough. It wasn't simply a misinterpretation of something you saw. Uh, based on what you've said, it sounds like it was quite, quite vivid and concrete. Um, the iconography of the situation of the guy who was red with a tail, well, that sounds demonic, not necessarily Satan, but at least demonic. And the Darth Vader figure, even though he may not be wearing a Darth Vader mask, he sounds like another kind of sinister figure. So it could be, an experience that God allowed you to have to warn you about dangers, you know, that that you need to be wary of, you want to stay away from the demonic, and, and so forth. It also could be an experience where demonic forces were trying to intimidate you, perhaps in relation to the fact you're about to be confirmed soon. Um... But uh, you didn't come to any harm as a result of this experience. I mean, it may have rattled you a little bit, but but nothing fundamentally bad happened. And so I would say that uh, you should be of good confidence. One of the things that James says in his letter is, you know, resist the devil and, the God will, and God will put him under your feet. So I would simply be of good confidence, I'd go ahead, I'd get confirmed, and I really wouldn't worry about it. If it happens again, or if it keeps happening, I I would consider exploring it further. Also, if it happens again, I would you know invoke the name of Jesus and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. I'm not. I don't want to mess with okay. you. Okay. Um, you could pray a Hail Mary. You know, you could say various prayers. Um, saying the Lord's prayer is another good one. Um, But I wouldn't Mm -hmm. really devote a lot of thought to it, in in part because if it was a dream experience, the more you ruminate on dreams in waking life, the more it can cause them to recur and cause additional anxiety Mm -hmm. unnecessarily. So I would be inclined to uh, just leave it in God's hands and say, God, I'm not sure what that experience was, but I'm here to follow you and I'll trust I'll entrust myself to you. I know you'll keep me safe and um you won't give me anything I can't handle. So I'm just gonna proceed forward and live my life of loving you.
3: Okay, that's what I'll do. Thank you, Jimmy Aiken.
1: No you. problem. And if 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 such experiences keep happening, you know, let me know and I'll be of what further assistance I can. Uh, Carolyn, hang on, I'd like to send you a copy of Jimmy's
0: book, uh, The Words of Eternal Life, True Happiness, and Where to Find It. Uh, right now I'm going to go real quick to Houston, Texas, Eli, in Houston, Texas. Uh, Eli, are you there with us? hmm Okay, you've got to be real quick if you'd like a qu- an answer from Jimmy, because we're right up against it. Can you ask your question real quick?
3: Okay. Um, I was wondering, how do we know that John the Baptist was conceived without original sin?
1: Well, it's not Church teaching that John the Baptist was conceived without original sin. That's an idea that—in fact, I don't know of anyone who's really proposed that he was conceived without original sin. I do know some people who have suggested that he was born without original sin, and the reason they say that is because um, he is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb— And it is commonly thought that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then you don't have original sin. And so if he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb, then you could argue that he must have been healed of original sin before he was born, not from the moment he was conceived, like Mary, but while he was in the womb. Uh, this is a popular idea in some quarters, but it's not church teaching, so be a little careful about it. There are other ways of looking at, at, the, at the question.
0: Eli, thank you so much uh, for being so quick uh, with your question. I'm sorry that we weren't able to give you more time than that. I'm sorry to those folks that uh, we left uh, on the line, but we uh, were able to get lots of questions answered. And Jimmy, thank you very much for doing that for us for a full hour.
1: My pleasure.
0: And that'll do it for us for today. Right now we got that fall sale going on, so don't forget about that. If you head over to shop.catholic.com, everything's on sale. 10%, 25%, in a few cases, even more than 25%. shop.catholic.com We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Live.